What is up? Element Church. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Jeff Manis, lead pastor here at Element. So glad that all of you are here with us today. Uh, if you're joining us via video, I always want to say hello to you guys, no matter how uh, you are joining us, no matter where you're joining us from today. Uh, you're a part of our family. And if you're watching on Facebook Live, we stream there every service. Uh, would you just do me a favor and click the share button there on Facebook Live? If you're here in the service, take out your smartphone, open up Facebook, and share share that Facebook live stream. That would be awesome for you to do that. Today is You Choose Sunday. So the songs that we sang are ones that you selected. And uh, the sermon content today, I'll be doing my best to answer questions that you submitted. So this is the one Sunday a year. You cannot complain because you asked for this, okay? Uh, Or at least you had a chance to give your input. And to help me out today, I've invited my wife to join me on the platform to help kind of guide our discussion. Discussion. And most Sundays, I barely see my wife, uh, which is why she probably loves Sundays so much. But uh, uh, today, with a chance of having her out here with us, would you do me a favor and give a great element church welcome to my wife, Sabrina? going to say I like Sundays because I can watch Hallmark without you interrupting me. That that works. <laughs> Why we even have Hallmark, I don't even know. So, (laughs) uh, if you don't know, this is my wife, Sabrina. So, Sabrina, say hello to everyone there who may not know you. Uh, And uh, she's going to help us out today, like I said. I hope you guys do understand that we received way more questions than we can possibly answer in the time allotted today. If you don't get your question answered, please understand it's not because I didn't want to. We just don't have time uh, to fit it all in. In fact, I went about five minutes long in the 9 a.m. service, so just preparation for that, trying to get these questions in. Uh, so it's either I don't have time to, or you're the person that asked the question, what's the record number of pieces of bacon I've eaten in one sitting? Uh, someone asked, are you participating in No Shave November? I think it's obvious what's going I on there too. with that. You are too, yeah. <laughs> awesome, okay. Um, And then a lot of questions came in that we just answer on a regular basis in our Foundations Basics Bible or Leadership classes. So if you had like a, just a, a regular theological question, you can probably get that answer in one of our classes or groups. would encourage you to sign up for that at the Next Steps wall out in the lobby. And then I hope you know too, you don't have to wait for You Choose Sunday to an, ask a question. Like I'm in the lobby after almost every service. Uh, you can email us questions to the church office uh, and we'll do our best uh, to answer those. You can even ask like what you consider to be a super controversial question and I will do my best to have Pastor Andy answer that for you. And... Um, <laughs> So, Sabrina, besides making me look really good today, uh, I'm going to go ahead and hand this over to you. Okay. So the first couple of questions are personal. What would you say is your biggest struggle as a pastor? It's a great question. I'm answering this because it's one that we really haven't addressed before. But the biggest struggle I have as a pastor is leading a church in Bronco country. (laughs) Or leading a church with Cubs fans. Either way. Either way. Either way, it's equally difficult. No, uh, here's, listen, just being honest, this is my biggest struggle as a pastor, is living up to people's expectations or what I believe their expectations to be. So it may not be what they expect, but I just believe there's certain expectations. For instance, I, I love being a pastor. I love being your pastor. I really do. Um, but I, I know that I can't be the pastor 
that everyone in our church gets to meet with, uh, go to counseling for, get advice. I can't do every funeral. I can't do every wedding. I do meet with some people. Um, I do some counseling. I do some funerals, some weddings, but I, I can't do them all. And really, I shouldn't do them all. <laughs> in a church this size, that wouldn't be healthy, nor would it be biblical for me to be the only pastor that, that meets with, with every person who might, who might need it. And I know that's hard for some people to understand. That's a struggle for me, to know that there are people who, who have this expectation of their pastor, and I'm not, I'm not living up to that expectation. So I hope that you guys understand this, that... When you have a need or something, a counseling need, uh, you want to talk with somebody, have a wedding or, or a funeral done or something, um, it may not be this pastor who does it, but we will have a pastor who helps you. Like we will always have a pastor who will help you with whatever you need done in your life. It just is not always going to be me. And I just, I, I struggle with that. And the bigger the church gets, the harder that gets. But that's, that's really my biggest struggle. Okay, so this one's personal too, but I think we all struggle with this on some level in our lives. How have you personally navigated doubts about God, and then how have you handled skepticism about the Bible? So I'll tackle the first question first. How have I handled doubts about God? And I put a lot of thought into this on whether this was truly the case, trying to remember my whole life. So here's my answer, and then let me explain. I'm not sure I've ever doubted God as in doubting the existence of God. So even as a young person, when I was not walking with the Lord, I always still knew there was a God. And maybe that's due to my upbringing. I was raised from my very first breath in a Christian home. So maybe it's due somewhat to that. So I've never really doubted that God existed. What I have doubted are the claims of God in the Bible, specifically like, like truths from the Bible that, that God would say. And so here's what I've always come back to, though, and this is my answer to how I deal with skepticism about the Bible, and this won't answer necessarily a skeptic's uh, opinion, okay? But for me, if I ever get skeptical about the Bible, here's what I go back to. Either the Bible is the Word of God, or it's not. There is no in-between, Okay? There, there's no fence to straddle. There's no line to walk. It's either God's word or it's not God's word. So I can't pick and choose the parts of the Bible I like and then leave other parts out because I, I don't understand it or it's hard to swallow or I, or I don't want to apply it to my life. For instance, if I'm going to believe God's word that there is a heaven and God made it, then I also need to believe in the way God said I get there. I can't say, oh, I, I, I can't say, okay, I believe the Bible that there is a heaven and God made it, but I reject God's way of getting there. There's multiple ways to heaven, okay? No, there's not multiple ways to heaven. There's one way to heaven. His name is Jesus, okay? One way. John 14, 6, John was one of Jesus' best friends. Many people believe his closest friend, he was a disciple, he wrote the Gospel of John in the New Testament portion of the Bible. John records Jesus saying this in John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So I take Jesus' word at what he said, that he is the way to salvation. So here's a statement that I came up with that helps me out. Maybe it will help you as well. It's on the screens. It's this. It's either true for all or it's not true at all. Either all the Bible is true or I can't trust any of it to be true. 
So it's either true for all or not true at all. And yes, there's a lot of discernment that needs to go into, like, especially the Old Testament portion of the Scripture, because a lot of those things in the Old Testament were, in, were um, intended specifically for the Jewish people, the Israelite people, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, the, the, the religious laws that they were asked to follow. But there's some moral standards, some eternal truths that are woven all throughout Scripture. Those, to me, remain the same. It's either the Bible's God God's word or, or it's not. So that's how I deal with skepticism. This next question, there are very strong opinions on both sides of the issue. What's your view on consuming alcohol? I encounter many people I consider strong Christians and some routinely consume large amounts of alcohol and others are firm in their stance that they won't touch it. How do you interpret biblical guidance on this as it applies to our daily lives? I thought this would be a great time for you to just go ahead and answer one. So if you want to... No. no. You don't want to hear my answer. <laughs> I'm black <All> right. and white. <laughs> so here, let me, let me start by saying this. This is my view, okay? Two words, my view. I want to get that out there before I get stoned and run out of the building. Okay, so here we go. Personally, okay, this might be a surprise to people. Personally, I am a teetotaler, meaning I don't drink any alcohol at all. And it's not a pastoral thing. For me, it's a Christian conviction in my life. So before I was a pastor, I didn't drink alcohol. In fact, this might even be more of a surprise. I've only tasted alcohol one time in my entire life. That was in college. I had one drink of a beer, and I've never had a taste of alcohol since then. So that's a Christian conviction of mine personally. Uh, But I will say this. To be on our staff at Element Church, we have a staff code of conduct that we are all required to sign. This is, this is something that comes from me as the leader of our church, that to be on staff, we have to abstain from all alcoholic beverages, from all tobacco products, from all illegal drugs, and then when in, when in Colorado, legal ones as well. We've got to abstain from legal drugs when in Colorado. And, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul did say he was stoned. It was not that kind. So whole different, whole different stoning right there. Um, so... I can't say, and no one really has a leg to stand on, to to say the Bible says it's wrong for a Christian to drink. I can't make that statement. The Bible is clear that drunkenness is a sin, right? To be drunk is a sin against God, but it doesn't say that that you can't drink. Now, here's some problems that that I have personally. When it comes to alcohol, I think we're asking the wrong question. We are asking the question, is this wrong, when we should be asking, is this wise? Is it wise for me to start consuming this beverage in my life? Is it wise for me to do that? We ask questions like, where is the line, instead of where is wise, okay? And I'm going to talk about this in a second here. We're going to talk about premarital sex here in a second, but I've used this illustration so much with that, that when it comes to sex before marriage, purity, in, in the church, in Christianity, we are always asking the question, how far is too far? My answer to that question is this, that question is too far. Because what we are wanting to know is, how close to the line of sin can I actually get without sinning? And we do the same thing with alcohol. How much alcohol can I actually consume without crossing the line from not sinning to sinning? So instead of asking where is the line, I think we should ask where is wise? Where is wise in this for me? For instance, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong for me to go to lunch with a woman who is not my wife. 
but it's not wise. The Bible does not say it's wrong for me to go to the home of a woman who is not my wife. But that's downright stupid, right? (laughs) Like you are literally playing with fire when you do that. And that's what Proverbs says, by the way, about sin. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? So for any sin, any, any line crossing, the closer I get to the line, the more in danger I am of scooping fire into my lap and starting on fire, okay? Some other things I wrestle with is this. You know, people say, well, I'm not getting drunk. And so I struggle with the I'm not getting drunk argument with a lot of people because my question is who determines what drunk is? Is it the legal limit, the legal driving limit? Is it the initial buzz Is it when you pass out? I think we would all agree that the more alcohol you consume, the less judgment you actually have. So am I really going to trust myself to determine what drunk is when I'm consuming the beverage that makes me drunk? That's a question I wrestle with, okay? And then one of the main reasons I personally choose not to drink, which comes from the Bible, you can find it in Corinthians, that to me, this is just a common sense thing for me, I think it's, it's not it's good practice for all of us, is I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone in my life. Not just alcoholics, but to anyone, my children, my my friends, my family, okay? So for me, I don't ever even want to give the chance for someone to say, well, Pastor Jeff drinks, so it must be okay for me to drink, okay? And I might have the discipline to stop at one, But they don't know how many I've had. And so while in my discipline, I might be able to stop at one, I might have given them in me having one beer or one glass of wine, I may inadvertently give them the license to do in excess what I have the discipline to not do. And so the whole stumbling block issue is a big one for me as well. I don't want to give anybody a stumbling block. I don't want to be a stumbling block. And then lastly, and I'll move on because you're all going to hate me now, but I know, I know all the arguments uh, about how, you know, one glass of wine is actually good for you and all, all that. I get it. Okay. But besides that one argument, I really don't know of one benefit that ever comes from drinking alcohol. In fact, by a landslide victory, The use of alcohol, specifically in our country, has brought more damage, hurt, heartache, confusion, division, and harm than just about anything in our nation's history. And so for all those reasons, okay, the Bible doesn't say you can't. I just think it's not wise for me to even start heading down that road for all those reasons, and I'll leave it there, and you can decide. There may not be a more relevant subject for any church to address than this next one, and we had multiple questions come in on this. Are homosexuals and bisexuals welcome in our church? Jesus loves all, so do we. Hmm. So, (laughs) obviously this is a weighty question. And before I I answer it, I want to let you know that in February of 2015, I did a a 40-minute sermon on what does the Bible say about homosexuality and how should our church respond. So I would encourage you to listen to that if you've not heard it. Uh, You can go to our website, elementchurchwy.com, hover over Watch Live, click Past Messages, and the series is Fifty Shades of Grey, and you can find that message there. I believe it was week three of that series. I I preached 40 minutes on it. I'm not going to preach 40 minutes on it here, but I'm going to answer. So let's start with this. Are they welcome here? 
absolutely, absolutely gay people from the LGBT community are welcome here. But here's the question I'm wrestling with. Are they welcome here? Yes. But will they continue to be welcome here? That's what I'm struggling with, okay? And here's why I'm struggling with that. While they are 100% welcome here, at the same time, we also, as a church, not every person in our church will agree with this, but as a church, this is our stance, we also hold 100% to the biblical value, standard, and definition of sex and marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. So we hold 100% to that. So hear me out here before you make any judgments. Let me get all the way to the end and then make your judgments after that. Okay, so hear me out. We do believe, as a church, that the act of homosexuality is a sin. But we do not hold that sin up as different from any other sin in the eyes of God. That yes, the political, the, the social, cultural, legal ramifications of a number of different sins are different, okay? The, the homosexuality and another sin are, are equal, I believe, on, on the sin level in the, eyes, in the eyes of God, okay? There's a whole wide range of sins. Jesus died for all sin, of which I've committed many, right? I hope you would agree with yourself that you also have committed many. So my position on whether or not someone from the LGBT community or lifestyle is welcome here is this. This is my statement. We accept them. We accept you if you are here and you're gay. Just the way you are. But we do not approve of your lifestyle. So uh, I believe acceptance and approval are two different things. They're different, okay? I do this with my kids all the time. Like I will accept my children Always. I will love them unconditionally, but I do not always approve of how they live. Like there are times I'm going to say, you know what? I love you, but I don't approve of the way you're talking to me right now. Right? All parents in the room can agree with that. So that's how I'm viewing this, this issue. And so here's the thing. This last, just recently, I sat out in the cafe of our lobby across the table from a young woman who attends our church. She's a lesbian and she's married and they come here, they bring their kids with them. They've been coming for a while and she wanted to ask me about our position and really if we'd be willing to change our position. And we had an hour long, uh, could have been longer. It was a phenomenal, peaceful conversation. Okay. It was insightful. I feel like I learned a lot from her in that conversation. And it was, you know, it was, it was, um, kind, which well, if we're honest, on both sides of the issue, on the church side and the LGBT side, a lot of times it's not kind. There's just vitriol thrown at each other, okay? But it was, it was awesome conversation, which I thanked her for. But at the end of our conversation, she said this to me and kind of summed everything up by saying this, Pastor Jeff, I hope you understand that for us, and I'm speaking broad strokes here for the entire LGBT community, and I understand that, but she said, for us, anything less than a full embrace of our lifestyle, we view as rejection. And I said, I get it. Like, I understand. Because, I told her, for you, you believe, whether we agree or not, you believe God made you that way. And so then I come along as a pastor, and I say, well, I'm sorry God made you that way, but even though he did, you can't live that way. I get it. Like, I understand why it's received as rejection. And so I'm just being honest right now. Like, my heart breaks over this issue. 
it breaks over it. Because I do want gay people to feel like they can come to our church. And I do, I want you to know that if, if you're here and you are gay or someone you love is, a friend, family, whatever, like we love you. And we are navigating how this works between loving but also not giving a license to what we believe the Bible says is morally wrong. So we're navigating that. And church, this is messy. It is messy. But you know what? We welcome the mess. That's the only thing to do is welcome the mess because I didn't say this earlier and I don't know why I am now. This couple that I talked with has kids who love our church. And it, it just breaks me to think that my response could potentially turn those kids away from God because their parents felt rejected by us. Breaks my heart. And so I told her, sorry, I made you cry. <clears throat> I told her in this conversation, I said, I also hope that you understand that I'm not accountable to you. I love you, but I'm not accountable to you. I'm accountable to God and then to his word. And so if I as a Christian believe the Bible is the word of God, and I believe that what it says about homosexuality is true as written, if I believe that, for me, to reject what the Bible says so I don't make you feel rejected, then I've just rejected God. And I can't do that. Can't do that. And so we're navigating how this all works. And let me, let me just challenge, challenge us with this. Thanks. I was so challenged by this as I was even preparing this answer. And I've gone longer on this for some reason in this service. Hopefully this is helping somebody. But we use language like the gay issue, the homosexuality issue, the LGBT issue. And I know there's no ill intent when we use that because both sides use it. I even use it in my answer, okay? But ultimately, this is what I was challenged by. This is not about a gay issue. These are gay people. Jesus didn't die for issues. He died for people. And if we ever lose sight of that church, we have lost We've lost. So we have to remember these are people involved with this. And I don't know how to navigate it, but we're working there, and I'm going to shut up because I'm just going to keep on going. Hope that was okay. <laughs> okay, these next couple of questions I think many Christian singles wrestle with. I have such a hard time understanding premarital sex. How does God view it? What is the best way to keep my relationship pure and Christ-oriented without giving in to lustful desires? How can I be forgiven for it, and how do I set my mind to change and stop doing it? Okay. So before I give my answer, I'll add some to it. Um, I've been holding, I found a video months and months, like over a year, maybe two years ago. I've been holding on to this video, waiting for the right time to use it. And then this question popped up, and so we're going to use it here. So it's a three-minute video where this pastor answers the question way better than I could, and I agree with it. So check out this video. So I find that there's a ton of talk right now in the world with my friends, with my family, my neighborhood about sex and about what sex is. 
And I also find, at least as a follower of Jesus, that there's a chasmic gap between culture at large's definition of sexuality and God's definition. By that I mean from the scriptures um, as Jesus would define it, as the biblical authors would define it. So basically, as I read it, culture at large defines sex as recreational play between two consenting adults. So it's just physical, it's just the biological coupling of two bodies for sexual release and what's the big deal? As long as it's between two consenting adults, if it's mutually pleasurable, I mean, what in the world is the big deal? It's just play for grown-ups. And then the church often comes along and says, okay, here's all the rules. Here's where you can do it and here's where you can't do it. But they buy into culture's definition of what sex is and then basically say, well, you can do it, but only in marriage. And oh, by the way, only marriage between a man and a woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And to most of us, that's just nonsensical. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you hear that and you think, what, what kind of crazy, uneducated, traditional, outdated thing is that? That makes no sense. But reality, we have to get behind it to the definition of what sex is. So as I read the scriptures, as I read the teachings of Jesus, here's how I understand sex. In Genesis chapter 2, the word echad is used, that in sexuality, two people become echad, or it can be translated one flesh. This is a graphic, weighty word that basically means, when it's put together with this word flesh, fused together at the deepest level. That in sex, a man and a woman come together and are fused together at the deepest level. It is the bonding of two people into one entity, body and soul, physical and spiritual, because there's no way to bifurcate the two. So it's actually a much higher view of sex than cultures. Culture basically says, hey, it's just play. It's just biological. What's the big deal? God says, whoa, 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 no. It's way more than that. It's two people who become one entity and then over and over again enjoy and express love for one another through sexuality. Now, inside of marriage, this is beautiful because it, it takes two people and it doesn't let them drift apart. It keeps them together. It keeps them echad or one. But outside of marriage, this can be dehumanizing because it can turn people into objects for basically self-gratification. And then every time you walk away from a sexual partner, it's as if you tear echad, as if part of you is lost. And you do that enough times and it starts to hollow you out from the inside. So I, as a follower of Jesus, think that we need a higher view of sex than culture at large is, not a lower view. We need to get back to the mysterious, beautiful, powerful reality of what happens when a man and a woman make love. It's like it's really, really good. So I hope that was helpful. Um, I would agree with that, that we need a higher view of sex, uh, that um, that it's, it's what's best. God wants what's best for us, and he has designed what's best. So it's not like... Wrong, 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 wrong. I do. Good. No, it's always good. Sex is good. It's best, okay? It's approved of inside of that bonds of marriage. So I thought that was really good. You can also check out, we do whole sermons on this many times. If you go to our website again, to the sermons page, look up Sex, Marriage, Love, whole series on it, Fifty Shades of Grey, talk about it as well. So let me address a couple of these other questions. This person asked, how can I be forgiven for it? Um, and so you're forgiven by repentance and confession and faith. So repentance, by the way, means to turn. So if you want to be forgiven, it's not like, okay, I'm going to... I had sex today, and I'm going to want to tomorrow, but I'll just ask for forgiveness today and do it again tomorrow and ask for forgiveness. That's not repentance. Repentance is not sorry I got caught. Repentance is I am sorry I offended God. 
so much so that I turn and go the opposite direction. Repentance means 180. So to turn and go the opposite direction. So if you want to be forgiven, you turn from that, go go the opposite direction. When, if you fail, fall into sexual temptation, okay, you ask for forgiveness. I believe God forgives us. How do I set my mind to change and stop doing it? Um, when I was in high school, we were doing, in our youth group, the youth pastor was teaching on sex, and he was asking a question about sex, and I raised my hand because I'm, you know, smart aleck, and I said, sex is kind of like potato chips. And he's like, okay. And I was like, once you have one, you can't stop. <laughs> That's true, right? I mean, it's true. So here, here's, here's what I want to say. I didn't say this in the 9 a.m. service, but I said in this service. Our bodies are designed to go all the way. We are created sexual beings. So once you start down that road, guess what your body wants to do? Wants to finish. So that's why when you're in junior high and you hold hands for the first time, a few weeks later holding hands ain't good enough because your body's designed to go all the way. So then you kiss. When you have your first kiss, all of a sudden kissing's not good enough. Then it goes into some making out. Then making out's not good enough. And you can let your mind go to what's going to happen, right? So here's why. Here's what I say then about those boundaries, okay, about how do I stop? How do I change my mind stop doing it? You need clear boundaries you will not cross. And again, stop asking how far is too far and start asking what is wise for me to do sexually, physically, not just sexually, but physically with the person that I'm attracted to. And if you want to know some specific boundaries I think you should have in place, I'm going to let you ask me those out in the lobby. I just don't have time to go through all of them here. Let me, let me say this though as well. Um, I, I usually say this to the young ladies in the room. It goes both ways, but specifically to, to young ladies in the room. No matter your age, if you're single, hoping to be married one day, if you believe in Jesus, set your boundaries now. And any man who will not respect those boundaries does not deserve to be your husband. Okay? And listen, you might think, well, what if he leaves me? Good riddance. God's preparing a man who will treasure you if you'll wait, okay? Because you are a princess of the king and deserve to be treated as one, okay? So pick your boundaries and stick to them regardless of what it means for the person that you think you're in love with. They have to respect you, okay? Good. What does God say about divorce? Is wrongful divorce and remarriage forgivable? What would you say to someone who is going through a divorce but is still in love with their spouse, but their spouse wants out? So again, if you go to our website, did a sermon series uh, last year called Happily Never Happened, and we did a whole sermon, 40 minutes, on divorce and remarriage. You can go there, because I'm just going to touch on it here. So what does God say about divorce? Malachi 2.16, he says, I hate divorce. Not I hate the divorcee, but I hate divorce, Okay. Then Jesus is recorded saying this, Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. Jesus is giving his definition okay, of marriage that from the beginning, it's male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's the same word from that video we saw, ekhad, the deep, uh, fusing at the deepest level. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. 
So that's God's view of marriage and divorce. And here's part of his view. I don't think Jesus is saying you shouldn't split apart. I think he's saying you can't. No matter how hard you try legally to separate a married couple, you have become one. You cannot separate. You cannot make undone what God's made one. And some of you who have been through divorce, especially divorce with kids, you know this. Are you ever truly separated from that person? Ain't no way. Right? You live with that for the rest of your life, that connection that you have to that person. So is wrongful divorce and remarriage forgivable? I don't have time to go into what's wrongful and what's you know, allowed, but absolutely it is. Okay? God forgives any and every sin. We call out to him for forgiveness. So what would I say to someone going through a divorce but still in love with their spouse? I would say this, and I don't think you're going to get a lot of this advice from people in your life, but I would say this. Never stop fighting for your marriage. Never Pray like you've never prayed before, love like you've never loved before, serve like you've never served before. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that I'm telling you about 99% of people won't give you this advice, but I believe it. Even if the marriage goes through and you are divorced, don't stop fighting for your marriage. You are not required to move on. It's hard to hear. But here's why I say that. This question came in. My divorce from my husband was finalized about five months ago, but we are now back together. I prayed many times for God to bring him back to me. And now that we are here, what does God's word say about restoration of a relationship like this? God's word says, amen. Amen. Right? Because that's God's design. That's his desire. Restoration is always the goal of God. Okay? Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. And covenants last forever regardless of what you do with the legal document. (laughs) So never stop fighting for your marriage. There are miracle stories happening in our church and you can be one of them. (laughs) You can be one of them. Okay? Well, can I do one more? I'm going to anyway, so thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being excited. Let's do, uh, let's do the last. This, the, that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a young married couple looking to start a family, how do you raise children, teens in the world today? With all the social media, society standards, choices of the world today, do you have any advice on how to raise up children in faith? Okay. Here's my advice. Start with the Word of God. Whenever you have children, as early as you can, if you've done this too late, you can start it now. Start with the Word of God. So teach them from an early age what the Bible says. Stories in the Bible. Give them a biblical worldview. We need that today in our kids. Second of all, I would say make church a priority in your life. It saddens me, not just as a pastor. This is not Pastor Jeff speaking. This is Christian Jeff speaking, okay? It saddens me as a follower of Jesus that church attendance has become so irregular even among people in the faith. Uh, According to current statistics, you are considered a regular church attender if you attend 1.5 times a month. I don't know what 0.5 is. You came for singing and not for the sermon. I don't know what 0.5 is, but (laughs) you attend 1.5 times. You are a regular attender. At 1.5 times a month. 
And I understand, you know, jobs sometimes dictate that. I get that. But uh, somewhere along the way, as Christians, we stopped making God's house a priority in our families. Okay? And I I understand, I, I get everything that happens. You know, we're busier than ever. And we got sports and vacations and mountains and all this other stuff. But... What what we are teaching our children is your activities are more important than God in this home. And they will be parents someday who need to lead their children to make God's home a priority. And so I don't know where we draw the line because we're busy too, okay? I'm required to be here. If I don't show up, I don't get paid. So I get it, right? You're not required to be here. I get it. Okay. Then the last thing I would say to do with your kids is this, be the gatekeeper to your home. Be the gatekeeper to your home. That you get to decide what your children are involved in and what they are not. Kids until they're 18 have no rights and they need to know that. Okay. It is not your right to have a cell phone with unlimited access. It's my cell phone. I paid for it. I'm allowing you to use it right? So we personally are very, very conservative in what we allow our kids to be a part of. We allow some social media, not all social media. We are very conservative on what we allow them to be entertained by. Like on our TV, we have a code that they can't watch anything rated over over PG without us putting in the code and knowing what they are watching. It's a pain in the butt to go downstairs and enter in that stupid code. But you know what? I'd rather be inconvenienced than find my son or daughters watching things that might ruin their brain forever. Okay? And to be honest, I'm going along here and I apologize. I hope you're okay. I am appalled, absolutely appalled at what some Christian parents not just allow their children to view entertainment-wise, but gladly give them access to it. I see on social media, I'm, hey, I'm taking my 12-year-old to this movie. And I go on Plugged In, which by the way, if you're not using Plugged In, you need to go to Plugged In. It gives you an actual breakdown of everything in every movie out there. What curse words are spoken, how much nudity, sexual content, drug, everything, violence, everything. I go and I read the review of a movie they're taking their 12-year-old to, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Why in the world? Like, they're going to be exposed to it soon enough. Lord forbid I'm the one that exposes them. And listen, they ain't going to like it. But I'm not accountable to my children. I'm accountable to my God. And one day, I'll stand before him and be held accountable for how I raised my kids. As a 42-year-old man now who had parents that I hated their rules, how many times in my life now I have thanked them, thank you for being a gatekeeper to our home. I want to be a good gatekeeper because these are souls God has trusted me with. I better be a good steward of that. I thought this was a great question from a perspective that you may not think of. Pastor Jeff, in one of his sermons, stated about marriage and relationships that spouses need to come second, after God and before children, and one of the reasons was because the spouse came before the children. My question is, what do you think God wants single parents or blended families to do? As a single parent, my child did come before a potential spouse. How do we make that transition when the time comes? Great question. 
and I loved this because it comes from a perspective that I don't typically think of. Okay, so super good question I've ever asked it. First of all, when I say that your spouse came before your children, I want to challenge us to think of it more than chronological but spiritual. Okay, that God's not bound by time. So chronologically, it might be true that your children as a single parent came before your spouse. But regardless of when the child comes, spiritually, God has designed marriage to be him first, your spouse second, and then children third. So I tell my kids all the time, she might be your mom, but she was my wife first. Okay? So she is second in my life. I love you kids unconditionally, but this is my wife. Okay? And so I'm, she's, she's next in line after God. And then you. And by the way, that's the best thing you can do for your kids. Is to love your spouse. I want to use the word more, and I think you understand. More than you love your children. Second place. Okay? This is the reason, by the way, why lots of empty nesters get divorced. Because they live for 18, 20, 25 years, depending on the number of kids in their home. So focused on their children being first that when the kids left, they barely knew each other anymore. So love on, serve your spouse, and, and keep them second. So the, the question then, how do you make that transition? I would say start now talking in an age-appropriate way with your kids about what the Bible says about marriage. Okay, So whatever age they are, like, hey, kids, like, and someday mom or someday dad wants to get married again. God might provide someone for me as a spouse. And you need to understand it's going to be really different. And so maybe go through what the Bible says about the roles of husbands and wives and parents and children. Like, just start talking about it. And it's going to be a difficult transition for you and for your children. But I think God will honor that. And, and you'll end up making that transition. Just keep your spouse second. So thanks for letting me answer these questions. Give my wife a hand. I made you cry again. You can go ahead and go. Let me pray for you, and then uh, Pastor Brennan's got some closing words. Uh, Lord, thanks for the opportunity to answer these questions, God. I, so many, so many good questions we didn't even get to. I, I pray, God, this is helpful. I don't know if it was, um, but I pray it was. And I pray, God, that uh, more than anything, we can unite together. Uh, that regardless of whether we agree on the answers, Lord, we can unite together on this. Jesus is our salvation. We love you, God, and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.